Well, this morning we come to finish Mark chapter 3, so I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I was interested to learn the other day that the phrase, the point of no return, was only coined 60 years ago. It was originally used in aviation and referred to a point at which an airplane, because of fuel consumption, could not return and land at the same airport from which it took off. It's like there was an imaginary line in the sky, and if you flew past that line, you couldn't get back. It was a point of no return. Although this phrase is relatively recent, the idea of crossing a line, of going too far past the point of no return, it's not new. In fact, I think the most famous ancient example of this is Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. You ever heard of that? You all know Julius Caesar, born around 100 B.C., He had a miraculous birth. Today we would call it a Caesarean section or a Caesarean section. That's where it comes from. He served in the army, the Senate, then he ran for consul. Back in the Roman Republic, it was led by two men, the consuls, and they were like the two CEOs of the Roman Empire, and the Senate was like the board of directors. And so he became consul in 59 BC, and he served for one year. His term was up because consul had a one-year term limit. Sounds kind of nice. And so he's off to Gaul. He became governor of Gaul. It's like South France. He led four legions there. They conquered Gaul, conquered Britain. He became a hero of the people. And these four legions were, their allegiance was to him. Meanwhile, the powers in Rome were not so happy with Caesar's growing power. And so they ordered him to disband his army, return to Rome, at which point they planned to prosecute him. If Caesar complied and returned to Rome without his army, he would have been persecuted and jailed, or at best, he would have been politically marginalized. He'd be done for. So instead, Caesar decided to return to Rome with his army. And this was a big deal. The law stated that no general could bring his army within the borders of the main Roman province, which is like Italy today. And the boundary between Rome in the south and Gaul in the north was the Rubicon River. So for any leader to cross this boundary with an army was an act of civil war. And on January 10th, 49 BC, Caesar led his army to cross the Rubicon. He was invading his own country. He was starting a civil war. And the moment he crossed that river, the moment the army crossed, was the point of no return. There was no going back. And Caesar knew it. He's famously recorded saying at that time, the die is cast, which means that this is it. Either he marches forward and takes over Rome and succeeds, or, or he's going to be killed. He will be executed as, a, as a, a traitor. There's no going back. The deed was done. We know how things turned out. We all know Caesar's name. He, he won that battle. But the, it was really a turning point for the whole republic, this point of no return in more ways than one as the Roman Republic fell and became the Roman Empire, led by dictators, the crossing of that river really was a point of no return. Now thinking about this concept, it makes us wonder, is the same true of God? Does God have a point of no return? Meaning, in our relationship with God, can we sin so much or so greatly that God cannot forgive us anymore? Some people sin in big ways. I mean, can God forgive them? 
murder, adultery, rape. Some people sin a lot over and over and over again. Can God forgive them? What about if we combine the two? What about serial killers? Now, can God forgive one murder or ten or a hundred? What about the leader of a genocide? Is that the point of no return for God's forgiveness? Today we find a very special passage in the Gospel of Mark, which for most people sits at the intersection of familiarity and ignorance. It's a passage which everybody seems to know, but yet so few people understand. There's widespread confusion over this passage, some fear, because Jesus seems to say that there is a line. There is a point of no return with God. He talks about something called an unforgivable sin, an eternal sin, something from which there's no forgiveness. Well, that's something I I would like to know about. If that's true, what what does this mean? Where is this line? What's really going on here? We think we should know. Today we're going to find out. We're going to aim to bring some clarity to this issue, which is much clouded. Now, while doing so in Mark 3, we don't want to miss the bigger picture here. There is a greater point to be made. The unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about is not actually the main focus of this passage. Because as we see, the religious leaders of Israel flirt with this sin. We see them reach a climax, a peak in their opposition of Jesus. It will only be surpassed when they physically just kill him. Like clay in an oven, they have reached the full hardness of heart. They are so envious and and jealous of Jesus that they actually get to the point of accusing him to be working for the devil, to be possessed by Satan himself. Now here he is, he is the Messiah, he is God incarnate, and they actually get to the point of claiming he is Satan incarnate. And their negative confession just serves as the last nails in the coffin, the final affirmation that Israel's current leaders are not fit to lead God's new people. Christ comes to bring a new covenant. He's going to form a new covenant community. We call it the church, this newer people of God. And it's all the more clear, especially after what we see today, that this new people needs new leadership. Again, this is why right before this, we saw Jesus choose a new twelve. A new twelve to lead a new people. And as time goes on, Jesus spends less and less time with the public, the crowds, the religious leaders, more time with his twelve. Because they will be the foundation of this church. Last week we witnessed Jesus redefining the family of God. Who is in God's family? Who comprises the true family of God? And we found it as those who do God's will, who believe in him. Those who follow Christ as Lord and Savior. And nothing less can be expected from the leaders of God's family. All the more so, they must be the ones who are the closest to Jesus, to follow him closely and truly. Israel's religious leaders were the exact opposite. And as we find them fully rejecting Jesus today, this is as far as you can go, apart from just killing him, As we see them fully rejecting him, so he and God fully rejects them. This is very clear in our passage, Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, which we'll be looking at today. Last week, remember we had the sandwich, verses 22 
20, 21, and then 31 through 35. So we are finishing Mark 3 today. Then we're just going to pace our way through this passage, Mark chapter 3 again, verses 22 through 30. We'll read as we go. Let me give you a few points to hang on, though. I want to start with this. Number one, the unseen setup. Number one, the unseen setup. You're probably wondering what that is. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same event, this unforgivable sin. And sometimes it's useful to look at the same event from different perspectives. And Matthew includes a little precursor to this event that Mark doesn't include. It's like an unseen setup to this whole interchange over the unforgivable sin. So I actually want to begin, keep your thumb in Mark, turn back to Matthew chapter 12. It's where we're actually first going to begin, Matthew chapter 12. We'll see this, at least according to Mark, an unseen setup. Matthew 12 is the parallel to our passage. It records the same events and they all work together, but Matthew includes a little detail. That Mark does not. Right before this happened, we see in verse 22 of Matthew 12. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David. Can he? Blindness ranks you know, right up there with leprosy in the ancient world as being one of the worst afflictions you could have. I mean, you're just, you're done for if you were blind, a leper. So when people like this were healed just instantly, completely, it caught everyone's attention in a, in a stark way. They were amazed, and what they say next is very telling. The people in response, they say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And do, do you see what they're saying there, what they're potentially uh, wondering. They're wondering if Jesus is the Messiah. The term son of David is just a crystal clear term for the Messiah. Here, here is Jesus performing all of these staggering miracles. And like other Jews said about Jesus in, in John chapter 7, verse 31, they said, hey, when the Christ comes, he's not going to perform more signs than this, ha- this one has, will he? I mean, it just gets down to this. If Jesus is not the Christ, well, then how, do you, how else do you explain all of these signs and wonders and miracles? Like, what do you say? We've already studied how Jesus, on purpose, did not publicize his identity as the Christ at first because the people, they had such a warped view of the Messiah. They didn't understand truly whom the Messiah was to be. But nonetheless, the rumors were swirling and people were starting to believe in him. His disciples believed. The crowds were starting to catch on. I mean, could this really be the son of David? Everyone was, was looking for the Messiah. But these rumors did not escape the notice of the religious leaders. They knew what the people were saying about Jesus. They fully knew that the people were wondering. Some people were actually believing he was the Messiah. Now, if you are one of these religious leaders, you claim to be longing for the Messiah. And along comes a guy and people are saying, hey, this could be it. He, this could be the one. He, he speaks from God. He works wonders of God. He has his power. I mean, this, this could be the one. Don't you think 
you'd get excited about that. You'd go, you'd check it out at least with, with a positive attitude. But we find an entirely different response. Verse 24 in Matthew 12, parallel. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is the people, when they see this blind man can see, they're amazed, they rejoice, wouldn't you? But the religious leaders, that they're sour, they're offended, and in disgust, they claim, far from accepting Jesus, that he is demon-possessed himself. You can head back to Mark now, that they run pretty similar from here on out. Back to Mark chapter 3. Well, we see the same response from the Pharisees. And this leads to number two, the untrue slander. After this, at least in Mark, this unseen setup, we come to now this, this untrue slander. Number two, untrue slander. Look at verse 22 in Mark chapter 3. Again, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. The scribes are mentioned here. Remember, most of the scribes were Pharisees. These were the experts in the Jewish law. And they used this to exert their rule over people. And they just they exerted their authority just by way of guilt and self-righteousness. They were holier, you're not, so they have the power. It says these scribes, they came down from Jerusalem, which you might expect it to say they came up from Jerusalem because Jerusalem's in the south, Galilee's in the north. But actually we're talking elevation because Jerusalem was known as the city on a hill. It was on a high hill. Elevation of Jerusalem was 2,400 feet. The elevation of Galilee was 600 feet below sea level. So they were going down every time. And it's really fitting for the Pharisees because they believe themselves to be higher than the common man. I'm sure they, they had, had this as a badge of honor. Now, I'm up in Jerusalem. It's like living in an ivory tower, sitting on their high horse. And I bet you every time they descended from Jerusalem to somewhere else, they thought to themselves, oh, here we go, we've got to descend to the common man. We learn elsewhere that these religious leaders had launched an official investigation into Jesus already. Now, who is he? What's he all about? How is he attracting these thousands of people? And then how do we explain these miracles? The Pharisees and scribes were with Jesus often, but they weren't really there to learn. They were there with a very critical eye. And by now we learn that they have upgraded their investigation into an outright smear campaign. Their conclusion is that Jesus is not good for business. He's not one of them. He's not on their side. He even opposed them. He made them look foolish in front of the people. He rejected their whole system. And he was leading other people to do the same. So this plague has to be stopped. At the beginning of Mark, Mark 3, remember we learned that the Pharisees, they began their plot to destroy him. Here, before they just resolved resolve to just killing him, they first we see their first tactic. They try and kill his influence. They try and turn the crowds against him and destroy his credibility. Verse 22, it says they were saying, this verb for saying, it's in the imperfect tense, which just goes to say that this was not a single, isolated, one-time thing. 
The Pharisees and the scribes, they were frequently and repeatedly beating on this drum. Jesus, he's just, he's just demon-possessed. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. They were saying this time and time again. That was their official tagline for Jesus. If you're wondering, yes, Beelzebul is a reference to Satan. Jesus confirms this himself in the next verse. This title seems to be re- referenced from or derived from Baal Zebu, which is which means the prince of Baal. He was the god worshipped at the city of Ekron in the Old Testament. The Hebrews probably made a, a mocking alteration of this word from Baal Zebu to Baal Zebul or Zebub in some translations, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. It was a way to mock this God. He's a false God. It was a mocking insult to him. Either way, by this time, this title came to be known as a reference to Satan, the ruler of the demons. So here for these Pharisees, their opposition to Jesus has become so extreme that they claim he is possessed by Satan. I mean, here he is. He is God incarnate, but they claim he is Satan incarnate. He comes as the Son of God. They're claiming he's a child of the devil. And you can tell it's just a massive attack on his person. It's also a massive attack on his work, claiming that he only casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Notice, however, the scribes, they actually acknowledge the reality of Christ's miracles. They never deny it. You can't. It was undeniable. This guy was blind, and now he sees. Nobody was denying this. They knew that they could not deny the power, the works. So their only recourse was to try and discredit the source of his power. They all believed it happened, and they knew the miracles were true. There was never a contest. But they they found the only way was to deny the source of his power. Here they claim it came from the devil himself. This just shows you how far a hardened heart will go to explain away the truth and the power of God. No amount of miracles or wonders would make them believe. They were just hardened in their unbelief. The same is still true today. You can give someone all the proofs and evidences of the Bible and of the faith you want. It's not going to make them believe. Like Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, if a person won't believe the scriptures, they will not even believe if someone rises from the dead. These leaders knew the scriptures. And they saw the miracles. They saw all the signs. But they did not listen. In hardness, their only option was untrue slander. You may ask why. I mean, why why not just leave Jesus alone? What's the big deal? But for them, the stakes were high. Jesus was popular, really popular. Thousands were listening to him, but he wasn't one of them. He wasn't a Pharisee or scribe. He didn't play by their rules. In fact, he opposed their rules. He was dismantling their whole system. And he was leading others to do the same. If they let this continue, it would be the end of them. Like new wine and old wineskins, they would burst. They can't let this happen. But even Pontius Pilate saw through the motives of these religious leaders. He understood, even he understood why they were crucifying him. Remember what it was? 
They handed him over because of envy. They wanted the power, the crowds, the following for themselves. If they couldn't have it, and if Jesus wouldn't play by their rules, they would take him down. What a complete contrast, by the way, to John the Baptist. Remember when he said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Pharisees, they were not going to let that happen. And so they resorted to untrue slander. Untrue slander. Jesus counters this, however, with number three. The undeniable spirit. Number three, the undeniable spirit. Look at verse 23. After this, it says, He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? Stop there for a moment. The first thing Jesus does is call the scribes and Pharisees to himself. Again, the picture, it's not just you have one Pharisee who says this just one time, an isolated event. No, multiple scribes and Pharisees were saying the same thing over and over again in in different locations, in Judea and in Galilee. This was a smear campaign. And so as such, they weren't saying this to Jesus. They were saying this to to the crowds. You can picture as Jesus gathered thousands around him, the scribes and Pharisees would be in the crowd. They'd pull people aside. They would blend in and they would subvert his authority with this slander. So to counter this claim, Jesus brings him to himself. He calls him to himself. Matthew 12, 25 says Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what they were saying about him. He knew what they were thinking about him. So at the very least, just just for the record, he calls them to himself and he presents them with this undeniable truth of the Spirit taught through some parables. He begins with a question, a question of his own, as he often does. How can Satan cast out Satan? Meaning, how can Satan oppose his own work and his own kingdom? It just it doesn't make sense. It's a practical impossibility. It's a theological absurdity. Jesus was casting out demons. He was freeing people, healing people, restoring them. That's the exact opposite of what Satan wants to do. So how, would, how why would he be casting out demons? And to illustrate this, he, he gives some very simple analogies that teach a very simple point. Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. These are just basic truisms. Everyone knows if a house is divided, it's going to fall. It's like before the American Revolution, the 13 colonies were divided. And if they were going to stand for their rights against Britain, they had to unite. And so that's why Benjamin Franklin famously published that picture, a picture of a snake cut up in all these pieces, each piece representing one of the colonies. And the caption under the picture read, join or die. It's a very simple message, but a very powerful message. They needed to unite. A kingdom divided had no chance. If Satan is divided against himself, he's finished. 
So logically, it makes no sense for Satan to be opposing his own work. I mean, his goal is to afflict people and to to destroy their souls through this demon possession, not to free them. This begs the question, though, if, if Jesus is not working by Satan's power, well then, well, then how do you explain the works? By what power is he working? In Matthew 12, 28, we hear the answer. Jesus said after this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's the undeniable Spirit. That's the answer. That's his source of power. This is not a civil war within Satan's ranks. This is an outside force, a stronger force invading the territory of Satan. There's only one conclusion and answer for the works of Jesus. He comes from God. He works by the Spirit of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. This is the testimony of the Spirit. But the Pharisees would rather live in the realm of logical absurdity than just accept the simple truth, the only truth. Now Jesus drives his point home, verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Very simple analogy again. Satan is a strong man. You can picture him like a pirate sitting on a, a, a pile of treasure that he has stolen. And you just can't go in there and take that plunder back unless you first deal with, deal with the pirate. You've got to bind him first, tie him up, take him out of the equation. Then you can plunder his house. And what does it take to do this, though? Well, it takes power. You need someone stronger than the strong man. You're not going to send a 12-year-old in there to, to do this job. You need someone who can overpower the strong man. And the point is, Jesus is that person. By casting out demons, he is proving that he is stronger than the strong man. He has more power and authority than Satan, whom Jesus himself says is the ruler of this world. But Jesus is stronger, and he can free this world from his power. And with each exorcism, Jesus displays the power of the kingdom. Every time Jesus casts out a demon, he binds that demon, defeating the authority of Satan and displaying the power of the kingdom he will bring. Every time Jesus casts out a demon, he is showing the ruler of the demons who his ruler is. Jesus is the ruler of all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus ultimately defeated Satan on the cross. He dealt him the final blow. The war is over. But Satan is still a real enemy. The battle continues in futility, nonetheless. We'll see this in chapter 4 of Mark, where Satan himself is pictured as the one responsible for stealing the seed of the gospel from the heart of unbelievers. His work continues, but Jesus is stronger. And for now, though, the truth of what Jesus says is undeniable. These claims, they don't fly. They're baseless. They're untrue that he is possessed by the devil. 
To the contrary, his exorcisms display the power of the Spirit of God alone. There's no other explanation. To say otherwise is wrong. But more than just wrong, to say such things about Jesus, you flirt with something much more dangerous. Something Jesus calls an unforgivable sin. We've seen the unseen setup, the untrue slander, the undeniable spirit. Last, number four, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. Verses 28 through 30 now. After this, he continues, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There's so many stories of Christians plagued by fear thinking they have committed the unforgivable sin. They have no hope. Even when I was a college pastor, there was a young lady who was physically, visibly shaken and anxious, so worried that because of her struggle with sin, she had committed the unforgivable sin. She had crossed the line and God could never take her back. This idea at least resonates with most Christians, which is why we take such a special interest in these verses. Of primary interest is this saying in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This spawns so many questions. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And how is that different from blaspheming the Son of Man? Which in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that is forgivable. Is this a one-time sin? Just like a line in the sand? Or is this a habitual sin over and over again? Are we stating that God cannot forgive? Or that he simply will not forgive? Is this technically forgivable, but God just says, I'm not going to forgive them anymore? What's the deal? There's a lot of questions. Most people view these verses like a foggy window, just clouded, can't really see through, unclear. And we want to now try and clear things up. To start off, Let's, let's talk about what the unforgivable sin is not. It's really helpful when you get into big issues like this. Let's just clear the table of all the junk, everything it's not. It's gonna, whatever's left behind, it's going to make it all the more easy to understand. So what the unforgivable sin is not. First, the unforgivable sin is not the same thing as unbelief. Unbelief can be forgiven. I was once an unbeliever. Some say, though, that it's a person's ultimate final rejection of Jesus. It's unbelief at death. It's dying in unbelief. That's the unforgivable sin. Well, that, that's a simple truism. If someone dies in unbelief, they will not be forgiven. But at the same time, at that point, all of their sins become unforgivable. It's a point for men to die once and then comes a judgment. Every sin is unforgivable at that point. Also, this doesn't explain the sin being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's very specific. And the contrast with blasphemy against the Son of Man, Jesus, which can be forgiven. This doesn't explain that at all. So the unforgivable sin 
is something more, something distinct from just dying as an unbeliever. That's not the unforgivable sin. It's not murder. David committed murder, was forgiven, many others. It's not adultery, homosexuality, theft. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11, makes very clear all sorts of huge, serious sins can be forgiven. It's not denying Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times and was forgiven and restored. It's not even this. It's not even murdering Jesus. On the cross, Jesus himself prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Showing it's even possible for those who killed him to be forgiven. And it was. And that's pretty extreme. I don't think there's anything worse you can do than kill the Son of Man. So it should be clear that this sin, it's not some evil action that you do per se. Which fits what Jesus says. This sin is not committed with the hands. It's committed with the tongue. This is a sin of the tongue. Something you say. Which is why it's called a blasphemy. Now what does that mean? What does the word blasphemy mean? It means to speak evil of, to slander, to malign, to insult, to revile. Blasphemy can apply to anybody. We normally think of it in relation to God though. Blasphemy being speaking falsely of God, speaking evil or wrong of God. But consider, blasphemy can be forgiven. Paul himself in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 13, or verse 13 said, he, he thanked God for saving him, even though he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. A blasphemer. So this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's not your average run-of-the-mill blasphemy. It's not just normal speaking badly about God. Blasphemy can be forgiven. So this is something more than that. It goes deeper. In fact, you could say blasphemy is really a sin of the heart. For our thoughts, our words, spring forth from the heart. Jesus taught that very fact, Mark chapter 7. And in the context of Matthew 12, remember our parallel passage? Right after Jesus tells them about the unforgivable sin, he says this, it's very telling and revealing. Matthew 12, verse 34. Right after the unforgivable sin, he says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you... Being evil, speak what is good. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he goes on to talk about good tree bearing good fruit, bad tree bearing bad fruit, so on and so forth. So we learn that we're actually talking about a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Blasphemy against the Spirit. It's not just a magical phrase. It's not some saying, this incantation, where if you accidentally say these words, like you're reading a spell, oh, that's it, can't be forgiven now. It's not just something you say, it's something from the heart. You do say it, but it springs from a heart. It's a heart attitude behind this. Again, though, it's not just normal blasphemy. It deals specifically with the Holy Spirit, not Jesus. Because like I said, Matthew 12, 32, Jesus said, Speaking against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But speaking against the Holy Spirit will not. So so wait a second. Is he saying like you can say terrible things about God the Father and terrible things about God the Son and that's forgivable. 
But if you say terrible things about God the Spirit, you can't be forgiven? So that makes no sense if we're talking about just normal blasphemy, just speaking badly against, speaking falsely of. That, that doesn't make any sense. I hope you can see that this sin does not involve just saying bad things about the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever can curse the Holy Spirit, just like a man can shake his fist at God the Father and be forgiven. It's bad. That's wrong, of course, but that's, that's not the sin. It's, it's something even more than that. It goes further than that. Now, just, just you know, bear with me. We've got to go a little bit further down the rabbit hole to catch this. We're getting closer. What we really need to do is further understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the context that we're dealing with. What is it that makes the Holy Spirit so special in this context that speaking against him crosses the line? Especially in relation to Jesus, because remember this, the Pharisees, they didn't even mention the Holy Spirit. He, he accuses them of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even mention the Spirit. They were talking about Jesus. So how, do, how does that work? How is the Spirit involved here? And there's only one mention of the Spirit in the context of these passages. It's back in Matthew 12, where Jesus said, remember, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus himself references the Spirit, not Satan, as the true source of his power and authority. And we know this. During the incarnation, Jesus laid aside his divine prerogatives, the independent use of his divine attributes, and he totally relied on the Father's will and the Spirit's power. For every miracle and sign that Jesus did, although he had power being God, he fully relied on the Spirit's power for every work. And so with every miracle, the Spirit of God was at work, and the Spirit of God was testifying. Every work and miracle was the Spirit testifying. Listen to this, 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. What's the Spirit testifying of? That Jesus is the Son of God. One of the Spirit's roles is to testify of Jesus, to bear witness of Jesus, namely who he is, that he is the Son of God. And the Spirit, through these works, is revealing Jesus is the divine Messiah. So every time they witnessed these miracles, they were receiving the Spirit's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know, the Pharisees, did they see the miracles? They did. And they received the testimony loud and clear. Loud and clear. They saw the miracles. They saw the power of the Spirit at work in Jesus. And it was undeniable. They didn't even bother trying to deny the power and the works. So, if you're tracking, let me try and connect the dots for you and, and bring, this, bring this together. Regarding the scribes and the Pharisees, first, they received the testimony of the Holy Spirit through Christ's works that Jesus is the Son of God. 
You get that? That they receive the testimony of the Spirit through the works of Jesus that he is the Son of God. And number two, they, they fully understood the implication of those works. They understood that the signs and the wonders implied and, and led to the only conclusion that he's the Son of God. What other explanation is there? He casts out demons by Satan? No. They knew the messianic prophecies. They saw the signs. In full knowledge, they knew what it meant for Jesus. But, number three, they rejected this conclusion. With full knowledge and revelation, they turned from the only conclusion, namely that Jesus is the Son of God. And they took it a step further. Number four, they instead purposefully misjudged Jesus to be working by the power of Satan. They purposely misjudged Jesus to be working by the power of Satan, and that's it. That's the unforgivable sin. That that's the line. This was not done on accident. This was not done in ignorance. It was done in full knowledge as the Spirit testified to them that Jesus is God incarnate, working by the Spirit of God. But they turned against that conclusion and knowledge, instead saying that Jesus is Satan incarnate, working by the spirit of the devil, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is not a generic, poorly defined, hazy definition. The sin that Jesus talks about is very specific. It's very well defined. It's related to hardness of heart. Only those who have gone fully extreme in the hardness of heart would ever get to this point. But it's not the same thing as hardness of heart. Hardness of heart can be forgiven. So, you know, by the way, don't go around thinking all of your unbelieving friends are lost forever because they hate Jesus right now. That's not quite it. You have to combine a few things. You know, people ask, can this sin still be committed today? And you have to ask the question, does the Holy Spirit still bear witness as to Jesus being the Son of God? Yes, he does. And so, likewise, this sin and this warning still stands. But it is very specific. So let's do it one more time. Just like the Pharisees, a person must first receive the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God. But hey, Jesus is not walking around anymore doing miracles. So is the Spirit still testifying? Well, how? Through the Word. Through the Word of God. Therefore, this sin today is only open to those who have read and know the Bible well. They have a knowledge of Scripture. They have witnessed in Scripture the power of the Spirit as revealed in Jesus. There it is. The Spirit still testifies. Now it's in the Word. And then they must fully understand the implication, the only conclusion from the testimony, Jesus is the Son of God. They have to understand that. This sin is not committed in ignorance. It is committed in full knowledge. A person must in their heart understand the witness that Jesus is the Son of God, testified by the power of the Spirit as seen in the Word, but then they turn against this conclusion. Even though they have full knowledge and the Spirit has convicted them, they still reject. The Spirit, by the way, still convicts Even unbelievers, John chapter 16, verse 8 says, And when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment. So this person has received this conviction but rejects it. That's still forgivable. Hardness of heart, unbelief, rejecting Christ, still forgivable. But I would contend a fourth step must be added. Such a person, having rejected Christ and the witness of the Spirit, then purposely misjudges Jesus to be demonic, working by the power of an evil spirit, not the Holy Spirit. I know, that's very specific, but all three Gospels agree this is, this is the final step. This is the line that the Pharisees crossed. Mark chapter 3, verse 30 confirms this because he explains the eternal sin. It says, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. A person knows the truth and they eventually call good evil and they totally turn on it in a demonic way. So to summarize, the unforgivable sin is a specific and final misjudgment that declares the person and work of Jesus to be demonic and evil in origin, even against all knowledge and even in the face of the Holy Spirit's true witness. Now, I want to ask just one more question to bring more clarity to the issue. What makes this sin unforgivable? In other words, where is the limit on forgiveness placed? We obviously can't limit God's power. It's not as if God is unable to forgive. He has already shown there's no limit to his power, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. The limit is not on God. The limit is on the sinner. When a person gets this far, this hardened, they come to this conclusion, even in full knowledge and the Spirit's testimony, they have limited themselves from God's forgiveness. They will never be forgiven. It's a level of hard-heartedness from which there's no coming back. At this level, they've made up their mind not to pay attention to the conviction of the Spirit, not to listen to their, His voice, and they have fully embraced the road that leads to perdition. We know God's grace can change any heart. However, Jesus here, he lets us know. In this case, God will not intervene. God will not save such a person. They will never find forgiveness and the responsibility for their hardness and rejection rests with them. Now I want to drive this home, make it clear. We're going to go a little bit long today. You just got to deal with it. It's got to bear with it. Because with a big issue like this, we have to do some due diligence. There's so much confusion and misclarity. We need to get this right. I want to drive it home. So bear with me. Just turn to Hebrews for a little bit longer. There are a few passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 that really parallel everything we're talking about. And I think emphasize the same points. And I think it will really benefit you just to see these cross-references here. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2. A little bit more here. Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible doesn't mention by the term unforgivable sin after what Jesus said. We see some close parallels though in Hebrews 2, chapter 6 and chapter 10. Let's just read a couple of these. Hebrews 2, look at verses 3 and 4. 
He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So what he's saying is, look, here's the gospel. It's your only hope of salvation. You must believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And that this message, this gospel was preached to you and it was testified by Jesus and then by the apostles. And how did they bear witness? How did they testify of this truth? Well, through signs and wonders and miracles, all gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if you neglect this salvation, if you neglect this testimony, what hope do you have? What are you going to turn to? That that's your only hope. If you turn from this, you have no hope. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 6. That just gets us started. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 through 6. Here's a, a warning passage. Hebrews 6 verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves Crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This describes a person with full knowledge. They know know the Bible. They've been to church. They know the truth. They know the word. They know the gospel. They've even felt the convicting work of the Spirit, like John 16 says, in their heart. They've received the Spirit's witness. But in full knowledge, they reject. They turn away. They're lost. They're at that point lost. Now, we are way beyond time to do a full exposition of Hebrews 6, but let me say this. These are warning passages. They're not condemning passages. What I mean is this. You see, there, there is a line. It's crossed only by those in the extreme hardness of heart. But, you know, we still can't see the line. We can't see this line in a person's life. We can't really see when a person crosses it. For instance, you've got a Christian. They go apostate. They turn their back on Christ. Are they too far gone? Well, I don't know. Because I don't know their heart. I can't see their heart. Did they reject in full knowledge? Did they really have the Spirit's witness in their heart? I don't know. I, I, I don't think I can know for them. And so it's really fruitless to wonder if a person has crossed the line. That's not the point of these passages. It's not so that we can be busying ourselves with judging other people. It's meant for us to judge our own hearts and to watch out for our own hearts. Like Hebrews chapter 4 verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the point. So that we would not harden our own hearts. Look, I'll tell you this, at death, it'll all be very clear. If you have a person who goes apostate, they turn from Christ, and they never repent, and they die in unbelief, 
well, I guess they must have crossed the line somewhere. But if he or she turns back to Christ before death and they die in the faith, well, I guess they didn't cross the line. See, it's there, but we, we don't know. We can't see into someone's heart. On this side of eternity, we don't know. Again, these warnings are given not to bother with judging others, but to judge ourselves. Just look at this. This will drive it home. We'll finish with this. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, turn back to chapter 3, look at verse 12. This is for us. This is for you. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, did you catch that? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. How do you know if you cross the line? Well, do you die in the faith or not? Anyway, back to the unforgivable sin from Mark. Let me just let me just speak to you and ease your conscience for hopefully for many of you. Listen to this. Listen carefully. If you have ever wondered or worried or feared that you have committed the unforgivable sin, you have not. Guaranteed. Do, do you understand that? The only people who cross this line are those so hardened in their rejection they never know or care or or fear. There's no concern. That's it. They're they're done. So the very fact that you care and are concerned proves that you haven't crossed the line. J.C. Ryle said it best, those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. And on the flip side, you know, I mentioned this verse gets all the attention in our passage, the unpardonable sin. So we're, we're going to leave that there. The warning, it stands. But you know, there's, there's a better verse for us at least. The verse, it's what Jesus said right before he warned them about this sin. I'll just read it for you. Mark chapter 3, verse 28. It's what he said right before this. This is, this is the real good stuff here. He said, First, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. You catch that? You forget this verse because what comes right after it is so such a big deal, the unforgivable sin. But what did he say right before it? He said, everything will be forgiven. Every sin. All sins will be forgiven. And, and don't downplay that in light of the, the exception for the unforgivable sin. I mean, just think, murderers, thieves, liars, adulterers, all be forgiven. The proud the angry, the impatient, the lustful, the selfish, we all be forgiven. Just everything that you ever have done and will do can be forgiven. You can even blaspheme and be forgiven. Life of unbelief, a life of hating God, we'll wash it right away. You can be forgiven of every evil. God's forgiveness is found, though, in Christ alone, by believing in Him, by heeding the testimony of the Spirit through the Word of God, the Word of God that you read and that is preached. 
to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing on Him, you can be saved. You look upon Him, you believe, you follow Him, you turn from your sins, and you'll be forgiven. And at that point, Psalm 103.12 is true of you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. When you come to Christ, God's grace covers all of your sin. He cleanses you. He accepts you, makes you his own. And then there's nothing more to fear. So let the warning stand. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. But for those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who are broken and in need of mercy, you can find all the assurance you need standing on Christ. And there's nothing to fear. Nothing to ever fear. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The book of Hebrews gives us some of the strongest warnings, but it also leaves us with some of the most powerful words of peace. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we we thank you for the word of truth that we've heard this morning. Your word is truth, it's powerful, it's convicting. And we know your spirit still testifies today in the word as we read it, as we hear it preached. You speak to us. And the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce all the way to the heart. It exposes our heart, lays us open bare. And who are we before you? I pray all of us are humble and humbled by your word and we confess our sin before you. We acknowledge we can't save ourselves. We are guilty. We have fallen short. But there is mercy and grace and forgiveness to be found on the cross that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, Jesus is Lord, we can be saved. We thank you for providing this forgiveness for us. I pray for any who are going down the road of hardness. They're turning away from you because of their sin, the deceitfulness of sin, that they would turn back. And I pray for everyone at this church that we would be encouragers so that others would not get that far. Not just me, all of us, Lord. May we busy ourselves with looking out for one another. If someone is struggling, to encourage them, to help them, to help turn them back. Be gracious with us. May we be gracious with others. And we thank you for the grace we have found at the cross. We worship you now. In your name we pray. Amen.